Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. One administrative note before we get started this week. In line with the Thanksgiving holiday in the U.S. and Christmas holiday, I'll be re-releasing two of my favorite interviews from earlier this year that I think are worth another listen, or your first if they're new to you. I hope you'll enjoy hearing them again and maybe even be struck by something you missed the first time. Today, however, I'm talking to Tracy Friedlander, classical musician and host of the Crushing Classical podcast, which explores ways that classical musicians are finding career paths outside of the traditional orchestra and performance roles. Tracy and I talk about how she got started with the French horn, what it's really like to audition for and perform in an orchestra and where that can and can't take you, the largely untaught art of listening, what happens when your musical dream turns out not to be quite what you wanted, and how musicians have started to make their own new paths outside the orchestra world. Even if you're not a classical musician, there's a lot to inspire you in this interview. So here's my conversation with Tracy Friedlander. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Absolutely. So you're, you play the French horn. Yes. And I'm curious to know how you got started playing French horn. Well, you know, it was fifth grade mm-hmm. and band was a, was the thing that was new for school. And of course, I wanted to play the flute like every girl. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but the band director said, you know, we have a lot of flutes, a whole lot of flutes. What about the French horn? And I was, you know, like, I don't know, I really wanted the flute. And then the band director said the magic words to my parents. If she gets good, she'll get a scholarship in school. Oh, in college for college. And uh, they were like, how about the French horn trace? What do you think? (laughs) You know, so but then I took it home and I was just in love. You know, I got this thing home and it was fun. It was really fun. That's cool. I'm I'm just thinking that like a French horn is kind of I have to think unwieldy for a fifth grader. Did oh it? my gosh. And I and I'm <laughs> a small person anyway. And in fifth grade, I was really small. And I was carrying around this like 45 pound case with mm-hmm. an instrument in it. Oh and my God. just struggling <laughs> to pull it up the bus steps and all of that. Oh my God. Little did I know they have like soft cases and backpacks and things like that. But back <laughs> then they just give you the giant case, you know? Yeah. Did it take you a while to kind of figure out how to literally wrap your hands around it (laughs) (laughs) um you know it was a little bit of a challenge for the size of it just to figure out it's a really awkward instrument because it's round with that Mm -hmm. big bell on the end and then the mouthpiece is on the other side and when you're little you know really I mean how you play it is you hold it off your leg or or you can rest it on your leg but when you're short if you put it on your leg the mouthpiece is above your head so there was like there was some navigation there definitely but we've I figured it out over the years as I grew and everything oh wow yeah I'll bet there were some funny moments with that I'm just just imagining but probably (laughs) totally adorable too (laughs) yeah my first horn had a was duct taped together like there was 
they put duct tape over the bell <laughs> for some reason. I didn't have that one for very long. Then I got a new one. But yeah, so I set out to play the horn and my parents weren't musicians, so they had no idea what I was getting into. And I just took to it. So they got me lessons starting in sixth grade, which was a really smart move because mm-hmm. you really need private lessons for an instrument. For any instrument, but especially an instrument like the horn, I think, because it's so hard. So did you have group lessons in school then when you first started? Yes, but there were no other kids that played the horn, so I got private lessons. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No one else picked it. Because I did attempt to play the flute for a while. My mother plays the flute, so it was the (laughs) obvious choice. And I do remember, now that you are talking about this, the the group lessons with, you know, four or five other girls standing there in the room. Yeah. So, so you got private lessons and then you got real private lessons. Yeah. So I got real private lessons from a real horn teacher Mm -hmm. because my mom also worked in a high school as the secretary in a different high school than where I was going in an elementary school, obviously. But, um, she met the horn teacher, the person who, and, and later I find out this is what I did a lot after I got old enough and it was in grad school, I would go to the schools and teach after school. Like the kids would stay after school and come to the band room and have their lessons. And that's what this guy did. Rob, mm-hmm. his name is Rob Murphy. He, um, he was doing that at, at this high school where my mom was the secretary. So that kind of gave her the awareness that this was a thing. You know, I think it was really funny that, that she happened to work at a high school at this time. Cause I don't know how, cause we lived in a really rural, rural area. She would not have it would not have occurred to her, I need to find a horn teacher, you know, okay. it sort of fell into her lap. So that was a really good thing. So I started studying with him as a sixth grader, which was great. And then I just took off, you know, once I had a horn teacher who was showing me the ropes and the right, the right music to practice and the right programs to get involved with, I started, eventually I went to a music camp and then youth orchestra and kind of work your way into the scene, mm-hmm. you know, as a student. And that was, that was really what showed me that I could do that for a career. Because once I got around kids who were more advanced, like at camp, and then in youth orchestra, especially once I got into the Chicago Youth Symphony in Chicago, um, that was a big deal. Because these were kids who were like, looking at it for a career. Wow. So I'm guessing there there must be a lot more demand for French horn than there is for a flute if there was the dangled offer of a scholarship or possibility of a scholarship. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, exactly. So you said your parents really didn't know what they were getting into. <laughs> no. <laughs> so what, what surprised them and how did they deal with it? Um, let's see. Well, first of all, they didn't really, they didn't listen to classical music. So that was a really weird thing. Um, and didn't really, they weren't concert goers either. Mm-hmm. They loved music. They had a lot of records. They listened to, I mean, they always listened to the radio and they liked Chicago. And um, I don't know, my mom really loved Barry Manilow. And mm-hmm. um, I just remember Barbara Streisand was a big favorite of theirs. And they didn't, but they didn't listen to classical music. So that was u- new for me as well to okay. really learn about this whole world of music. Like where the, where is the horn used? You know, right. I mean, and so it opened up this whole new genre for me that it was completely introduced to me by my friends and to my, by my teacher. So I started like 
buying, I think I bought a cassette tape of Mo- the Mozart horn concertos. I mean, mm-hmm. this is back when record stores were in malls, you know? Yes. And <laughs> I remember those. <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. And you go, like, I went to the classical section and found the horn concertos. And so I listened to that. And then once I got into youth orchestra, my friends were telling me about you know, Mahler symphonies and things like that that use horns in a really big way. And and then right around then, my dad joined like the Columbia Records Club, you know, where you can, <laughs> yes. like when CDs were a thing then, and you could send off for them. Yes. So that's when some more classical records started showing up in our house. So I remember one of the first ones was Holst Planets and things like that. So it was, I was really driving the bus as far as what this thing was. Um, cause my parents didn't like, they didn't have an awareness about it. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I would find out about things from friends, you know, like I was in this youth orchestra that was close to my house. And then the first horn who was a couple years older than me said she played with the Chicago youth symphony. And I was like, Oh, what's that? You know, I want to audition for that. And I would come home and tell my mom and, and it was just sort of like that kind of thing. Oh mom, guess what? I came home from band camp, uh, music camp. And I found out there's an audition to go to Europe for a month in the summer. So I auditioned for that. And like, you know, I think it probably, I don't know about the financial side of how mm-hmm. that made them feel, you know, cause that's a big deal. Like, Hey, I want to go to, I just got invited to go to Europe for a month. How are you going to yeah. pay for it? Mom and dad, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but that, but those experience were experiences were life changing. So I'm really glad they figured it out. And then, you know, I remember going to college I wanted the youth orchestra, Chicago youth orchestra had a a career or a college fair type thing where Mm -hmm. all the conservatories representatives came and I found out about Juilliard and Curtis and all these fancy schools that were not in Illinois. And that my parents were like, no, we don't have the money to tour, to try those places. Mm -hmm. We don't have the money to send you out of state. You have to choose a school in Illinois. So that was really a bummer for me at the time, but I didn't have a choice. Right. So right. I went, I auditioned at a few schools in Illinois. I chose university of Illinois. And then when I wasn't so I didn't feel challenged. I wasn't very happy there. I called my parents and said, I'm going to audition at Indiana next week. And if you can't take me, I'm going to take a bus, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And they, they said, all right, well, we'll come down and we'll, we'll take you there. So I, I think I felt like Indiana was close enough Right. To Illinois that it wouldn't, even though it was out of state, it wasn't like, Hey, I'm going to New York city. It wasn't like right. so out of their kind of mind that it wasn't possible. So, um, so then I auditioned and got a scholarship to go to Indiana. So then I moved there. So it was a little, it was a better school and it was, um, better in a lot of ways, but, um, yeah, I, ha- I really had to tell them what was happening pretty mm-hmm. much, you know? Yeah, I'm I'm curious since they didn't start out with any kind of of classical music background, did they since you said that they did start buying some classical albums and things to listen to, did did they actually gain an understanding or was it more sort of I just want to hear the kind of things you're likely to play? Uh, I don't know. I think it was more there was so many choices and I think you just my dad probably figured let's add some classical stuff in here since that's what you're interested in. Or mm-hmm. maybe I, or maybe I grabbed the, the sheet. Cause you know, you could choose so many. Oh yeah. I mean, and I think maybe he probably ran out of things he wanted. So, 
<laughs> I don't know, you know. So you got to pick the rest. I, I was just curious yeah. because my my parents are both very into classical music, which is how I got started singing in choirs. But my dad's parents in particular never really were. You know, I mean, I'm jealous because his mother went to hear Benny Goodman twice, you know, when she was in her 20s. You know, I'm like, wait, that's not fair. Um, But that was really more their thing. And I'm not exactly sure how it is that my dad landed on the classical side. But until the day he died, my grandfather would say to me, if we took him to a concert, he would say... I don't really understand what I'm hearing. You know, you'll have to explain this to me. This this isn't, you know, this is lovely, but I don't know what it is. And, you know, things mm. like that, which is kind of why I wondered what, what your parents ended up yeah, learning they were, or getting or, yeah. Yeah, they still don't listen to it. <laughs> so it's you who make the CDs. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really like they never, they never bought into the whole world of it. Mm-hmm. You know, they would go to concerts, but... um. And it's certainly not every concert. And then later years, it was just my job. You know what I mean? I mean, they would come to my big youth orchestra concerts. And when when I came home from that tour that I mentioned, the European tour Mm -hmm. that I went with, it was a camp in Michigan called Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp. And they had this thing called the Concert Collage, where the group of kids who went played an orchestra band, jazz band, if it applied to their instrument, and Mm -hmm. choir. So we did all four things as a big group of kids together. So it was really cool. And on the way home, we did a small U.S. tour just of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And my dad volunteered to host the an Illinois segment of the tour. And then um, so he organized this whole thing. We had the concert at the at the college near nearby at Northern Illinois, and he actually conducted one of the marches. You know, they like oh cool. That was like Stars and Stripes or something where Mm -hmm. the orchestra doesn't really need the conductor that much. (laughs) But it was one of the biggest thrills he ever had, like to go up there and do that. Yeah. So that was nice. But yeah, like they, they, they were into it because I was into it, but they didn't become classical music lovers because of it at all. (laughs) Okay. So, so was classical music sort of a form of rebellion for you at all? (laughs) That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. It was, I always kind of thought like, what, what other parents have kids in their bedroom blasting Mahler symphonies? Yeah. You know, or like Rachmaninoff piano concerto number two or something, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I think it was just a thing I discovered that I fell in love with. You know, Mm -hmm. I felt like, I felt like the music spoke to me in a way it was this long form thing that could take you on a journey yes and back then it was listening was really intentional then this is kind of what I miss about listening to music now because everything is streaming and you have endless choices you know I really miss being like I'm in the mood for this particular piece and I thought of it because I saw it on the shelf I pulled it off And I'm going to sit down and listen to this whole thing, you know, and I used to, I used to even fall asleep to specific movements that I liked Mm -hmm. that relaxed me, took me on a, like a, you know, I felt like, I don't know, for some reason I felt like the music understood what I was going through. Like it like musically explained it or musically empathized with me or some, some thing that's hard to explain with words, but yeah, I just really fell in love with a lot of that repertoire. 
That makes perfect sense to me. And I, it, you know, I've, I've wondered sometimes what it must have been like, you know, 150 years ago when you didn't have, I mean, you certainly didn't have Spotify, but you didn't even have a radio. And so music was an event and you would go yeah. and, and very deliberately say, I'm going to the opera, I'm going to the symphony, I'm, you know, going to whatever and go and, and sit and listen like that. Yeah. I think, you know, music of any kind has become so incidental. It's background noise in a lot of cases. And, and I wonder what we've lost because of it. And I don't know how we could say, I'm sure somebody's studying something somewhere, but it, you know, it does, it does make me wonder. I mean, I will admit, you know, I, I was the kid who on road trips and for concerts was allowed to take a book with me because I couldn't sit still long enough. I could still listen, but my eyes needed something else to do. Um, and my brother was allowed to draw, which is part of why he's an architect now. But, but still, you know, we would always, they would take us to concerts when we were kids and they, you know, it, they were very clear about how you are not allowed to talk. You, you know, if you have a problem, you have to whisper, but make sure it's important. And, you know, all of that kind of good concert etiquette that does not exist anymore. I, a couple of years ago, I, I used to teach and we took the whole school to a concert and I was just beyond appalled at how kids sat there staring at their phones the entire time, texting each other, not paying any attention at all. And I was like, you know, okay, this may not be your cup of tea, but you could try and you could at least not be rude to other people who want to try because this is really distracting. And I, I mean, it was, it was worse than I could have even imagined that it would be. And, and the awful thing is that I think I was one of the only teachers who was upset about it. Because it's kind of like I I, I still can't on. believe kids are allowed to bring their phones, <laughs> yeah, in those kind of settings or even at school. But why didn't they set that that expectation up before the concert? I wonder. I, you know, I don't remember if they tried or not. They may have tried, but since it was mostly a school event and not, I mean, I think it was open to the public, but not many members of the public came. Uh -huh. uh, you know. I think everybody may have just viewed it as this is an internal thing and we're not going to worry about it, but it was still just, I couldn't concentrate. It, you know, I couldn't listen and anybody else who wanted to listen had to have been having a problem. And, it, you know, and it still was just like, this is, this is not how your school should be represented. Right. You know, even if it's just to the performers on the stage, which included the school chorus. So you would think that, you know, your friends are up there, but even that was not as exciting as staring at a phone screen the entire time. So, so yeah, well, yeah my, I think my parents I would really, not have approved. No, definitely not. <laughs> and I, I think that, I think you have to change your kind of context for what it is before you go. Because like, as you said, in today's, today's world, we have music that's you know, I don't know, two minutes long, maybe mm -hmm. one and a half minutes long. It's not, songs aren't long. No. And then to say, you want to come and listen to a symphony, the whole thing is an hour. Yeah. You know, the concert will be two hours long. You know, it's a different kind of experience, but yet we still go to movies that are two hours long because mm -hmm. the movie takes you on a journey. So it's a similar thing as that, you know, except it's only with your ears. Right. And so I think, I think the active listening piece is is really 
the main thing that you have to think about and maybe learn, maybe relearn. Because I remember some of the most extraordinary listening experiences I've had were when I sat down in front of a, it was a record player, even though records weren't, by this time it was grad school. I'm thinking of a particular time where I needed to study Tchaikovsky's Symphony Number no. 5. And I went to the library to get a, re- a record and put it on. And with headphones, I just sat there and listened to the whole thing. And that active listening isn't, I would recommend it to anyone mm-hmm. to just, to set, sort of like how I'm sitting down to read a book right now. I'm sitting down to watch a movie right now. Try it sometime. Get a piece that's an hour or 45 minutes long and sit down with headphones and, and listen. And you'll you'll be amazed at the kind of journey you go on. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think we we've I, I want to say we've lost it. I kind of wonder how many people have had it in the last couple of decades. But yeah, but yeah. And 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 you know the other thing is I I heard an interview a couple of weeks ago, and the the person that was being interviewed mentioned that really musicians are the only group of people that are actually taught to listen. And I'd never thought about that before. But as soon as I heard it, I thought, you know, how how true is that? You know, I think you're right. And I mean, and I can see as I'm saying this, where actors are taught to listen, but not in quite the same way. You know, you're you're taught to hear your lines and, and react to your lines and that kind of thing. But you know, there's so much that goes into musical listening because, you know, I know from singing in choirs and I have to imagine that it's similar, but probably not identical in an orchestra. You know, you, you want to blend with the people around you. So you don't want to be too loud and you don't want to be too soft. You want to be sure that you're in tune. You're paying attention to the conductor, yep. but you're also hearing all of the other instruments and, and, and the other voices and how all of that comes together, which is a whole level that a lot of people don't ever get. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it really is true. I mean, listening is such a huge part of playing. Because if you're if you're just paying attention to what you're doing, everyone's gonna know. Yeah, (laughs) it's obvious by the way you're playing, you know, so listening is, is definitely integral in, in learning music. Yeah, I think that if you're, if you're not listening, I think listening is, is integral to gelling as a group too. Yeah. Yeah, it it can't happen otherwise. It does make me sort of wonder, you know, even people who do take, uh, you know, lessons when they're in elementary school or junior high, a lot of people give it up. And I wonder if how many people don't realize that they they learned this little bit. And if they lose it, I don't I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here, but it seems a shame (laughs) to me that that we don't learn to listen. And I feel like now with screens and social media and everything the last thing anybody does is listen yeah that's probably a tangent (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a big open uh, worms can of worms worms. yeah Yeah. so so tell me when when you finally got a a job playing what was that like yeah so out of student land (laughs) yeah well it's weird as a as a musician to transfer out of feeling like a student because when you're learning an instrument, you kind of are never, you never stop learning. You always want to improve. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the first job I ever got, they, in in the music world, we call it winning an audition. So Mm -hmm. you have to audition 
And if you win, which means you're the one that's chosen, then you get the job. The prize is the job. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. You get to work now. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but that um, means you get to get paid. <laughs> exactly. So the first job I got, it didn't pay very much. And it was tough because I moved to Virginia to play with the Virginia Symphony. And it was... It was some one thing I didn't know about music careers that I didn't realize then. And even though I was seeing it in front of my face and I realize now that I'm older because I was only 20, I think six or five when I got mm-hmm. that job, um, was that for a lot, for most orchestras, I'd say for every orchestra, but there's a top tier. So there's levels of orchestras. There's New York Phil, Chicago Symphony, Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, you know, that range of the big city orchestras make the most money. And it's mm-hmm. usually around 160 as the base. So wow. that, yeah, that's the base. And then whether you're a principal player or some other title position, you can negotiate more money on top of that. So that's, so that's the kind of job that you'd get where maybe you don't have to think about your other side hustles or, or things because it's a, it's a livable salary, Mm -hmm. but also it's the busy, those are the busiest orchestras. And then you have another level below that. That's like a mid tier and maybe they make like 80 ish, 70, 60, 80, somewhere around there. And that is kind of a range you can still live on, but you probably want to teach and do other things if you want to, you know, depending on your lifestyle. Mm Mm-hmm. If you're single and you live in an apartment, maybe that's fine. You can just go to work and that's it. But when you have a family, you know, the, the usual things as you, as you, as you evolve and grow into your adulthood and you have kids and you have a family, depending on how you you live your life, you want to make more money. So you teach a lot of times. And then there's like levels below that. And Virginia Symphony is at the kind of bottom of that. Mm-hmm. Like um, the people that were there already taught at colleges, taught lots of lessons, Maybe they were married to people who made more money than them. There was a lot of like that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And I rolled in there as a 20 something with a ton of student debt and a ton of credit card debt from freelancing in Chicago. Right. And it was just really a struggle to live there financially. Cause I, here I am thinking I want a job. This is the big prize. This is what you get right. after grad school. Sometimes. I mean, not, it's pretty rare to get a job right out of grad school, mm-hmm. but, um, but then I realized later what people were doing was they were making a life in that city and I didn't really want to make a life there. I didn't, I didn't see myself there for a long time. And I was also disappointed. I'm like, Oh, I have to, I mean, clearly I didn't do any math, but (laughs) I was like, Oh, I have to, I don't want to wait, wait on tables anymore. I did that in Chicago. So I realized I was making the same amount of money at home really. Mm -hmm. So I decided to leave after a year and I went back to Chicago to freelance and eventually taught a lot of lessons. And I, I spent a lot of time as a freelancer and that felt kind of like a real, that felt like it was a career, but there was always that that desire to get a big job, one of those top tier orchestras. Right. And so I auditioned for some of those, um, you know, at times I, I probably took like 25 auditions. I've never really counted up, up how many I've taken. And some of them, some of them I've gotten to the semifinals or finals. Cause there's usually three rounds that you have to get through to get to the end. And, um, but didn't get a job for 
quite a long time, you know, and it's expensive to go and fly around and take those. So I did a lot of freelancing in Chicago and played, was, you know, lucky to play with the Chicago Symphony sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then other times I was playing with suburban orchestras and um, that kind of thing. And then um, in 2004, no, 2003, at the end of 2003, I went to Beijing and I played with uh, the Beijing Symphony for three months. So that was interesting. I bet. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That was a good experience because that was a real, that was a full-time deal. Mm -hmm. And... I did that for a few months, but I realized I didn't want to, again, I didn't want to make a life in China. I didn't see myself living there. So I came back, but since I had so much time to practice there, I felt really prepared for auditions and I auditioned for the North Carolina symphony, which is where I am now. Um, and I wasn't the winner, but I was the runner up. They invited me to move there, move here Mm -hmm. and play assistant horn. Um, which is sort of, it's a fifth horn there's four horns in an orchestra mm-hmm. and the fifth horn is the assistant. So I, it's kind of like you help the first horn when they don't have solos, but they're saving their, mm-hmm. saving their lips for the important stuff you play. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of what it is. And, but over the, over the 10 years I played there a couple of times, I had one year positions playing fourth horn. And sometimes I would play other parts depending on the need and depending on the personnel. Cause over that 10 years, like people quit, people retired, mm-hmm. different stuff happens. People don't, people get the job and then they don't get, they don't get to keep it. They don't get tenure. They get fired essentially. Mm-hmm. So different things happened over the years. And then once eventually I had my daughter, I mean, I got married here to a violinist here. He, he started the same year I did. And, um, eventually we had a baby and, she's nine now, <laughs> but when she, was, when she was just born, I was, it was, it was really hard for me to work the same hours as my husband and have us both gone, especially on weekend nights, mm-hmm. you know, three nights a week and playing assistant wasn't the most fulfilling work. So I, I stopped working with the symphony at that point. It just felt right for me and mm-hmm. my family, you know? So that was when I stopped working with the symphony. I still freelance, um, with other groups in the city. But I, at that point was when I started to experiment with my own projects. Okay. Before we get to that, I'm just curious to know how does playing in an orchestra in Beijing differ from playing in an orchestra here? Are there big cultural differences that go into that or is it pretty much the same? Yeah. Well, um, the big cultural difference was that they play, they will play a lot of Chinese music for certain concerts. So they would, at least Mm -hmm. the way this orchestra was set up, there was, they would play a regular classical concert, at least, I think maybe once a week, maybe not every. Oh, wow. I can't remember if we did a new, we didn't not, it wasn't every week that we had a a classical concert. Some weeks we would just have these with the thing about what was going on. (laughs) And, but then the regular concerts usually would have a guest conductor. Mm -hmm. So they would, so the guest conductor was always from Europe or one time, one time we had a conductor from Mexico and they, they spoke English at rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, I was more comfortable (laughs) than everyone else, but the repertoire was the common language because it's the standard orchestral repertoire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Wow, that must have been a serious adventure. It sounds like it anyway. <laughs> it was. And another cultural difference is that the orchestra pays for your, well, actually, I'm not sure about the Chinese people, but but it's possible that the orchestra paid for their um, apartment because I think the whole orchestra lived in the same apartment building. Oh, wow. And they would bust them in to work. Wow. Yeah, I think, I mean... I wouldn't want anyone to quote me because I'm not exactly sure that's how it right. was set up, but I think it was. And then we, the three of us that were foreigners, we had our, our apartments were in the same building too, but we lived right around the corner from the hall. So we would walk there. It was really close. Well, that's convenient too. Yeah, it was, it was such an experience. Like looking back on it, I'm like, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> You know, yeah, I can imagine. Well, that's really interesting. So but I do want to hear about what you started doing after you left the North Carolina Orchestra. Yeah, so it was always a thing to get a big job. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the dream of every classical musician. But obviously, if there's only a handful of those orchestras, not everyone can get that. And it doesn't mean that other orchestras aren't just as good, mm -hmm. you know, the North Carolina symphony is a really high quality orchestra that is sort of a mid tier, you know, and the, the cost of living is a lot low, mm -hmm. lower. So you look at like living in San Francisco and even if you make that kind of money, you know, you know, the rents there right. or, you know, the cost of buying a house is exorbitant, but still <laughs> it was, it was a thing that, that I still thought that I wanted up until a point where I realized you know, do I really want to move? I like living in Raleigh. I like um, the city. I don't really want to go back on the audition path. Mm -hmm. The audition, taking auditions is grueling. You have to learn a lot of music. You have to be at the top of your game. You have to go and travel and be at the best possible level for that day and compete against 150 other people yeah. for one position. And I just didn't I think I took one other audition before I was like, no, I don't want to do this. I really don't. It was for an orchestra in Chicago for the Lyric Opera. Mm -hmm. And I showed up there in January. It was like a frozen tundra. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember how this is in winter. I don't know if I want to come back here, yeah. <laughs> you know? Oof. So at that point, I really didn't know what I was going to do. But I decided to start um, looking around online at what, other people are doing that haven't that have done something outside of either teaching in a university setting or getting a job in an orchestra. Mm -hmm. And I discovered a lot of people doing a lot of different things. And so I started writing my thoughts about creating a career path in this field and or creating a career in this field and my thoughts on going into tons of debt over music school, which is a whole other topic. Mm -hmm. You know, um, just sharing my thoughts and opinions online, which was kind of scary at first, because who am I to publish what I think? Right. You know, who am I? You know, and so that was like kind of what I battled at first, but kind of plowed through that and realized the more people that I discovered doing different things, I thought I want to I want to create a podcast and interview these people, find out what their their process is mm -hmm. and what made them create a different career and it, did they were they on the path to a traditional career and they changed their mind like what was what went on 
And I wanted to expose and highlight all of this stuff for people who probably feel a lot like me. So right. I started, so I, yeah, so I started the podcast Crushing Classical and it, I'm going into the fourth season of it. Nice. And I've, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I've learned so much from getting, you know, picking these people's brains about, I mean, some people start, thought they were going to get a job. Some people were in one year positions and at big orchestras and, and then when it came time to audition for that spot that they'd been playing, they didn't get it. I mean, that happens Oof, a lot yeah. too. Yeah. You think, you think you might be a shoe in and then you audition and someone else comes in and wins and then you're out on your, yeah. on your head, you know? So you, you have a choice. Do I go keep taking auditions or I do create, create something different. And so lots of people create something different. And those people have been on my podcast and I'm always looking for more people similar to that. Or even if it's not a story like that, but they just, some people set out to, they know from the start that they don't want to have an orchestra job. And so, you know, cause it's not all, it's not the other thing I learned about having an orchestra job is that it's not, everything's not, Oh yeah, you get paid to play your instrument. Isn't it just such a dream? You know, yeah, I was wondering about <laughs> that because it has to be different. It has to be yeah. different than what you expect. It is. It's not like youth orchestra where you play all your favorite repertoire and you have tons of time to rehearse it and get better at it. And no, it's like you have a week and sometimes it's not your favorite repertoire. Actually, most of the time it's not, mm -hmm. you know, and you have to travel and you have to play a video game concert, you know, where it's like the music from video games. Oh, wow. Is that what you went to school for? You know, it's like, it's, it's not. It's not, it's, it's what you, it's, you play what the, you know, what the management decides mm -hmm. that you play. It's not, it's not like this beautiful artistic freedom type deal. It's a job, but you get paid. Right. And at times it's amazing. At times you get to play your favorite piece and it's otherworldly, you know? So, so it's definitely, it's definitely not all, you know, rainbows and unicorns, mm -hmm. like you think it is when you're in college, right. honestly. And I wish that someone would have come into my college experience and, and said that blatantly and honestly. And that's why one of the reasons why I started writing and started publishing podcasts, because I don't think people are honest about it enough. Mm -hmm. It's like they don't want to say anything bad. Yeah, they know, don't want to shatter your dream, right? Yeah. And generally musicians in general never like to say anything bad publicly because they, they like to have the facade mm -hmm. mostly of like, everything's great. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, it's such a world, it's such a personality type. It's so funny, but so I shouldn't make blanket statements. Not everyone's <laughs> like that, but you know, um, <laughs> but like, so I've learned, I've just learned so much from interviewing people and also gotten the guts to start my own ensemble. I, I started one, um, and we're having a concert coming up in November. It's a, it's a combination of jazz musicians and classical musicians oh, and cool. we play whatever we want. And it's so much fun. It's just, it's like, I mean, I have, we haven't played classical music. Mm -hmm. We play, we play tango, we play jazz, we play bossa nova and it's really fun. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, it's really great. And it's, and honestly, I got the, I got the, um, the gumption to do it from, from talking to people who've done it before mm -hmm. me on the podcast, you know, like if they can do it, I can do it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Yeah. And so that has that the podcast and the platform has developed um, because ultimately when I started it, I was hoping to create also an income stream for myself mm-hmm. because I wanted to, I wanted to maybe not replace, I wanted to do something different. I never, I never wanted to stop playing horn mm-hmm. at all. And I still play with the ballet and sometimes the opera here too. Um, but it's perfect because it, those aren't full-time or, um, jobs like the orchestra. Right. So, but I wanted to, I still wanted to make money. Like that was part of the whole kind of motivation to, to look around and do something different. Like how can I make money mm-hmm. doing something different? You know, and that's a big part of the questioning on the podcast too, is that, do you make money doing the thing you do? And so eventually, you know, over the time I've been doing this, how do I make money too? Mm-hmm. And it was unclear for a long time until um, people started coming to me, asking me for advice on how to grow their audience, how to navigate social media. Because at a certain point, I realized, gosh, you know, I've been studying this. I've been digging into like the nitty gritty of how Facebook and Instagram works mm-hmm. so that you can find your audience for the thing you do. And people started coming to me for help on that. And I realized that's what I want to do, too, because I get really excited trying to trying to you know crack the code you know, figure out the puzzle, you know? And so now I'm starting, um, like officially, you know, at first it's like people help, can you help me? Sure. Let's, let's figure out what works just for you. And it's not really like, I haven't hugged my sign out on my door that I do it yet. So, but, but this, this fall at the beginning of the season four, I announced that, yes, I'm, this is what I'm doing. I'm coaching people. I'm starting a program that starts in December to, for people who, who have something they do, either they already have it and they're not being super public about it, or they want to create something. The biggest, the biggest hurdle is creating an audience for the thing Mm -hmm. that you're doing. As you know, as a podcaster, you know, you need to find people to listen to it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I think when, when other people come to you and start asking you how you've done something, that's usually a good sign that you must be doing something right. So I think that's really cool that you're running with it. Yeah, I know. And it's funny how you don't realize that you have kind of, I don't want, I guess I could say a passion. I I hesitate to use the word because I think sometimes we feel like, well, am I really passionate about it? But like when I start talking, you know, and that's a whole other topic too uh-huh. that people argue about, right? Like, am I supposed to feel so like lit up about it constantly? Like you feel like that when you're a musician, like, am I still passionate about this thing I'm doing? I don't feel super excited about this concert or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's, I think it's dangerous to, to use the word all the time. But I notice that when I talk with people about it, I get really excited. Mm-hmm. I get the main underlying reason why I love helping people with it is because what I found through finding through starting this podcast is I found my voice. And so, so I want everyone to find their voice. It's like, I realized that all these things that, that kind of weighed me down and upset me and triggered me about like, you know, a lot of, a lot of being a classical music is waiting to be chosen. Mm -hmm waiting to be called for a gig, waiting to be named the winner, you know, and there's no power in that. And so, you know, so doing something of your own and then finding the audience for that, that's where the power lies. Once you have an asset, like an audience, you can help people, Mm -hmm. you can reach people. And that's what's so exciting. Yeah. And I, 
It's it's interesting because when you're describing the the process of, you know, going through all of the auditions and everything, it what struck me is that it's got to start to feel like you're waiting for somebody else to tell you that you're good enough. Yes. Yeah. And that That's exactly. is only productive for so long. <laughs> you're waiting <laughs> for permission. Yeah, yeah, you're you're waiting for permission, you're waiting for the seal of approval that says, "Yes, you really are a musician. Yes, you really are, you know, an actor, yeah. whatever." And yeah. Exactly. And so like when you said like what was it like to finally break free of that student feeling and go into being a professional? So often you don't feel like you're allowed to say you are a professional at a certain, like, am I really a musician? I don't work full time Mm -hmm. as a musician. I also do these other things. Does that mean I'm a real musician? There's a lot of identity stuff. Yeah. A lot of times, a lot of times that's what holds people back about being public. Cause what, if I announce that I'm doing this other thing, what will my colleagues think? Will they think I'm not playing anymore? Will they say, do you still play anymore? What if they think I've stopped playing? You know, like, I think there's so much worry about what people will think, mm-hmm. you know, and also what you think about yourself. So, yeah. Yeah. And there, I mean, there are so many people who are reluctant to call themselves artists or writers or, you know, or creative in any way too. And I think it's, I think it's all huh. really part of the same problem or situation, you know, it's like, but am I a real this? You yeah. know, like you're saying, it's like, well, you know, do do you write? Do you do it on yeah. a fairly regular basis? Do you enjoy it? Do you like playing with words? Do, do you know, are you creating something or are you just thinking about it? Because if you're creating something, then you're really a writer or a painter or, you know, whatever. And we get we get so hung up on that idea of being a real this. It's like, well, yeah. your real may not look like anybody else's real, too. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And that's a big part of the audience piece, because the main thing is proclaiming that you are who you are mm-hmm. and this is what you stand for and this is what you do and this is what you think and that's how you create content and then that's how you start to build an audience and people want to follow and want to know what you're doing because you said you do it right you know i just i just listened to another podcast it was it was an interview with Malcolm Gladwell mm-hmm. on Oprah's Super Soul podcast which i is my favorite podcast right now by the way mm-hmm. <laughs> um she Uh, He said that in this book, he has a new book coming out, or maybe it's already out. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have to read it. It sounds, it's so fascinating. But one of the things he said was that people never expect that you're lying. Like humans are not wired to think you're lying. Like they will expect that you're telling the truth. It's just like a natural wiring. So if you say you are what you are, then you are. Mm -hmm. And people will be like, okay, that's cool. You know, yeah. it's not like we don't have to worry that like other people are going, are you really, are you really that, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting because I've, I've never really thought about that. And I know what it's like to be, you know, to tell somebody, you know, yeah, I'm a writer. I wrote a book, you know, and, and, and you yeah. sort of have this feeling like, please don't ask me too many questions because yes, I still have a day job and all of these things that you think that that means that I don't have and that that means that I'm not really a real writer. Right. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated what we do internally when we confront that idea of this is what I am and and actually saying it to somebody else. And I don't think we realize because, because even as you're saying that, I'm thinking, 
yeah, you know, if I meet somebody in the grocery store and they tell me that they're a lawyer, I believe them. Exactly. You You don't go, well, let me Google you because I don't believe you're a lawyer. You know, you say, oh, that's cool. You're a lawyer. Awesome. You know, and like, that's really what a big part of what we'll work on in the program, because honestly, that's kind of the, at the root cause of what stops people, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's, I remember when I started my podcast and like, I emailed people to say, would you like to be on my podcast? It felt really scary because I didn't have a podcast at that point. Yeah. You know, at that point, no, I don't yet have a podcast. You're the first guest. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm still, I'm saying here, I'm, I have a podcast, which puts me on the hook, which scares is scary too, oh, yeah. because, you know, now I have to figure out how to do that before the deadline, you know, uh-huh. and that's scary, but it's the first step and it's the first step in, um, making things happen. Yeah. And and I can say from from my own experience starting this podcast, I I approached somebody about doing an interview at a point where I barely had the idea to do the podcast and so it was like I think I want to do this thing. I don't have a name for it. I don't you know, I have this vague sense of what I want to do with it, but you know, I I was talking to this person and I thought What's the worst that can happen? He says, no. Right. You know, I walk away with nothing less than I have right now. And I was totally honest. I mean, I said, I'm starting a podcast. This idea is so new that I don't even know what I'm going to call it. But if you're game, I would love to talk to you. And he said, yeah, sure. So, you know, I mean, you you never know what will happen if you just ask. Yep. So they say no. Okay. You move on to the next person. I love what you said. I love how you said that. Like, if he says no, I have nothing less than I have right now. Right. Right. (laughs) That's so true. It's like, okay, I tried. It was worth a shot. Yeah. You know, and there have been a couple people like that where it's just, you know, you're sort of sitting there, you're going, yeah, they're never going to say yes. And then they do. Hey, why not? Yeah. You know, which means you need to go for bigger asks, right? Yeah. Right. But, but it's also like it, it so builds up your confidence because you're like, Hey, they might say, yes, it might be this great interview, you know, and, yeah. and, and almost inevitably it is. And, and so then you think, huh, you know, what, why not? Who else can I try? So, so yeah, exactly. it, it definitely, it, it, it gives you that momentum that you need to actually get started and say, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this thing. This is what, this is what I do. Exactly. Yeah. So is your is your program geared specifically toward musicians or is anybody who's looking to build an audience welcome? I really think anyone's welcome. You know, right now my audience is musicians, so that's who I'm um, inviting. But I would invite anybody. Okay. Yeah, because it's really the same, the same concept. Okay. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it should, should apply to a much larger audience. So. Oh yes, definitely. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm about to do a free training about what we'll be doing and it starts, it'll start before this podcast comes out, but at the time it releases, I'll make sure you have links to the, to the videos. Excellent. So if someone, someone catches this episode and they want to check out the free training, they're welcome to do so. And I'll, I'll make sure those links are with you. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So I'm just curious what, in the course of doing your podcast, since you are looking for people who've come up with, you know, paths that are not the beaten path, what surprised you the most? Hmm. 
Gosh, that's a stumper. <laughs> I don't know. What surprised me the most about the people who I've interviewed? Or, or Is that what, what you're they've saying? decided to do that's, you know, not an orchestra job. Oh, okay. That's a good question. Let's see. Um, well, sometimes I'm just amazed by what has been accomplished. Like in the case of my friend Giacomo, who went from being a tuba player to a conductor. He is the music director of the Amarillo Symphony, as well as a guest conductor around the country and the world, I think. I'm not sure about the world, but definitely around the country. And he's like the main conductor for Ben Folds. And he... Ooh. Yeah. And he um, he also started his own ensemble called New Deco Ensemble in Miami. It's so cool. It's really the inspiration for my group, Contempo, um, where they play like... They play unique kind of genre-bending stuff different different genres like genre whatever is what they do that's sometimes they blend classical music yeah sometimes they blend classical music with different rhythms or sometimes they they you know they they've been bringing in a lot of really cool guest artists so i think that's really inspiring one of the people i interviewed um is a composer who started this really cool concert series called mind travel where he he takes musicians on this journey it's sort of a meditative experience and it's completely improvised and composed on the spot and he plays piano in setting in beautiful settings like the beach in california or sometimes he's been in um times oh wait i was gonna say times square in new york in um in central park not Times Square, too too noisy. <laughs> yeah, um, and like, but he uses Bluetooth headsets. And so um, people can really kind of, they can be in this situation where maybe they wouldn't be able to hear a concert. Like mm-hmm. the waves are crashing in on the beach. You're not going to necessarily hear a piano. And so you have these headsets and you can, he has like tiki torches on the beach and it's, it's really a neat concert experience that, that you can like find it. anywhere else. Yeah. So that was someone I had on. His name is Murray Hittery. And yeah, I think those are the two really, you know, there's another guy who writes music that blends, he conducts it and he compo- he composes it as well. And then he takes it to orchestras and conducts it. Um, his name is, is Steve Hackman. And he, he writes, mashups so it'll be like um let's see what's tchaikovsky and drake music oh wow or hold play and mozart together and it's merged like a mashup so that's kind of interesting so there's people are doing some really cool things that does sound really cool and i like how how often improv came up while you were talking because I, I just, yeah. you know, when you mentioned Ben Folds, I don't know if everybody who's listening, and maybe I'm the one who's late to the party, I don't know. But, you know, when, when he just sits on stage with an orchestra and makes up a piece out of nothing. Yep. I know, it's cool. It's so amazing to watch. There were a bunch of videos on YouTube. If you haven't ever seen this, you should check it out. But, but yeah. Yeah, I've been on stage when he does it. Oh, really? It's really fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, do tell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's... He picks the people in advance and I think they kind of have a little chat about what they might do so that it doesn't completely put the musicians on the spot, mm-hmm. but they do. They, he makes the stuff up and he layers it on and then makes a song. So 
Yeah, it's really cool. It's not the only thing he does. What, what's in it the like concert. to be on the stage while he's doing that? It's fun. It's really fun to watch him, and the audience loves it. Oh yeah, that's that's clear yeah. from the videos. But yeah, and he does a different thing. So I've played concerts with him where there's two. I think usually there's two concerts, Friday night and Saturday night, and he does a different thing each mm-hmm. night. And of course, there's also it's not the whole concert. Like there's right. a lot of music plays that's already written and his hits and everything like that but yeah he's really cool he seems like a really amazing guy yeah well (laughs) now i'm so jealous (laughs) (laughs) yeah and those are like the pops concerts that we um that aren't as frequent obviously Mm -hmm. but they're still there those are that's the kind of one that that it would be a lot more fun than say the video game one or whatever, right, you know, right. like something with an artist like that where it's really special. Yeah. I haven't thought about those in a little while, but they are really cool. So anybody who's listening, seriously, go check them out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been really a, a awesome conversation. I I feel like we've covered so many cool things. So thank you so much. Thank you. And, you know, really appreciate being on. Oh, you're this welcome. Was a good conversation. Yeah. And and I think, you know, anybody who's curious about what else is out there music-wise should totally check out your podcast. So, it's crushing awesome. classical. Check it out. Yes. Thank you. So, you're welcome. Thanks much. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you got some new perspectives on the classical music world and on finding new ways to pursue the things you love from Tracy Friedlander. If you're a classical musician, and even if you're not, I encourage you to check out her Crushing Classical podcast. You can find links for that, the program she's offering, and some of the musicians she mentioned in the show notes at fycuriosity.com. Spoiler, if you've never seen Ben Folds do orchestral improv, you don't know what you're missing. See you next time. You can find show notes and learn more about how you can work with me to follow your curiosity at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time. 